keeping up with all that's going on around you isn't easy. So as we do every Friday, let's go behind the headlines to catch up on what's happening in Chicago and Illinois. It's time for our weekly news recap. Calling Chicago police and department in crisis, a potential mayoral candidate is pushing other crime-fighting strategies. The biggest crisis facing our city is violence. Chicago City Council just signed off on a big settlement for two men who filed wrongful conviction suits. It's just the latest payout for police misconduct tied to disgraced Commander John Burge and the officers under him. The Chicago City Council missed the December 1st deadline to approve a new ward map of the city. We're just at an amicable disagreement where we're trying to figure out how the next reapportionment is going to look like for the next 10 plus years. So much news to get into, and I cannot do it on my own. So here to help dive into the stories of the week is Brandis Friedman, host of WTTW's Black Voices. And she's also a correspondent and co-anchor on Chicago Tonight. Hey, Brandis, welcome back. Hey, Sasha. Also with us is John Byrne, City Hall reporter at the Chicago Tribune. Hey, John, happy Friday. Hi, thanks for having me. John, let's get right into it. We're we're more than a year out from Chicago's mayoral election, but we saw a potential candidate making the rounds this week. That's former CPS CEO and former U.S. Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan. Is he throwing his hat in the ring? Well, you know, he's not throwing it in the ring officially yet, but he's sure sounding like he's taking his hat off and is cocking it back to throw it at this point. Oh, boy. Well, he criticized Mayor Lightfoot's approach to fighting crime, specifically finding gang members and and seizing their property. Here's what Duncan said in a news conference this week. Let's take a listen. Just do your own homework. This is not a new idea. It's been used in other jurisdictions. Look in any of those jurisdictions and see if it's had any reductions in, in violence. And I think you'll find the answer is not. The second thing is there's a myth that you have these folks making tons of money on the streets. There may be a tiny, tiny percent of folks where that's the issue. One of the biggest issues we deal with with the young men and women we work with is they're homeless. (laughs) John, expand a little bit more on his criticisms for us. So the the mayor's proposed this uh, gang forfeiture ordinance to go after ill-gotten gains from uh, gangs and drug dealers around the city that that drive a lot of the violence. And she's gotten a lot of pushback on this um, from Duncan, also from lawyers and other activists who say, we've tried these kinds of things in the past. Really, most of these guys who are in gangs they, they they don't have fancy cars. They're not. They don't have assets. They're driving their grandmother's car. Things mm-hmm. like that. And you're hurting their families by by seizing this, this property. The mayor insists that she is going to narrowly focus this and and really go after gang leaders, the, the guys at the top. But it, it certainly uh, engendered a lot of controversy. Brandis, while he was slamming the city's approach to violence. He also laid out his own plan for combating crime in in Chicago. What do we know about his plan? He's laid out sort of a, I think, a four-point plan. Um, And it sounds like, from what I'm reading, something that he's presented in the past before. He certainly touts the work that he does at Chicago Cred, the violence prevention program uh, work that he does there, um, as something that needs to be replicated uh, across uh, across the city, scaled up. 
um, uh, to prevent uh, violence. Um, he's also talked about sort of uh, reimagining the role of um, police officers, and it's, it's a little murky about whether he means fewer officers uh, than what we already are seeing on the streets, but his intention is to, you know, instead of having officers chase after a lot of the, the crime that's happening, let's prevent some of that crime through these other steps, um, and those officers can be uh, focusing on um, on solving cases uh, that go unsolved, because we know that there could be quite a few of them, um, and also giving district commanders a little bit more autonomy in their districts to do what they need to do, um, and some criticism about the back and forth over these last few uh, police superintendents and sort of like the, the district-wide units that they had been deploying and then, and then uh, bringing back in, um, and, you know, working with the public and private sectors to... Um, to re-engage disengaged youth, you know, young mm-hmm. people 16 to 24 years old who aren't working or in school. Um, and so that's what we know for now. Mm. Well, as we said, Arnie Duncan has not officially entered the race, but I'm wondering, because he seems to be making the media rounds, right? He's presenting his own strategies. Brandis, what do you think? Has This week, has he taken a more serious step into I, the I, race? I think so. I mean, I think yeah. the speech that he gave this week, I think it, you know, it had already been in the books um, and already planned, but it seems like it's certainly an opportunity. Like, he, he's using it as a jumping-off opportunity to sort of launch himself, maybe see what the response is. I mean, if you're a reporter and you're, you're watching all this go down, you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, he's running, obviously. He has said that he is thinking about it seriously and that um, he's been approached about it. Um, doesn't necessarily mean it's a guarantee, but... Uh, I mean, from where I'm sitting just watching, yeah, it looks like the man is running. And maybe that changes, obviously, between now and filing day. Right. Um, but that's what it looks like from here. If you're just tuning in, I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset's Weekly News Recap, where we dig into the week's top local stories. Here to help me out are Brandis Friedman, who's co-host of WTTW evening news show, Chicago Tonight, and Chicago Tribune City Hall reporter John Byrne is here as well. Another story in the news this week, John, that the city is going to be paying $14 million to two men who spent decades in prison until their convictions were overturned. Take us back. Who are Corey Batchelor and Kevin Bailey? These were uh, two guys who were um, convicted in 1980 of a 1989 murder of the wife of a retired police officer. It was a, it was a very... It was a savage murder. It got a lot of attention. Um, these, they, they were convicted in part, large part because of um, confessions that they made. And then in, in recent years, they spent a combined 43 years behind bars, but, but they've been protesting their innocence all along. And it, it turns out that they were uh, questioned and, and they say tortured by uh, detectives who were associates of disgraced former police commander John Burge, the latest in a long line of these incidents where we have largely African-American men who are, are coming out and have over the decades. I mean, Burge was, was fired back in the early 90s, but we're still, as a city, seeing more and more of these instances to this day yeah. where these guys who were largely, you know, young black men and they're saying, well, we were, we were, we were tortured by this guy and there's been a pattern of it. And as a city, we paid out well over a hundred million dollars uh, to, to in cases involving Burge or detectives uh, uh, connected to John Burge. And how long did they spend in prison? It was combined between the two of them. It was 43 years. Wow. 
And so, yeah. in the end, their their convictions were overturned because what? Yes, yes, and and because you know the the, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, when faced with the evidence that these Burge associated um, uh, uh, detectives had been had been torturing them and, and threatening them to to get them to confess to these crimes, then um, uh, you know they they ended ended up dropping the cases against them. Brandis, have you been following this one? I have been following it uh, a bit. Um, and, you know, earlier this week, the mayor was asked, you know, because, you know, collectively the city has paid out hundreds of millions of dollars. A few years ago under uh, Mayor Emanuel, the city council finally agreed to sort of a reparations package, which included, you know, a center for um, for torture. It's being taught in Chicago public high schools. Um, and I think at the time it was was it about fourteen million, seven million? I can't remember the exact number, but something, something million dollars set aside um, to be paid out to the victims who uh, who came forward and were found to be, mm. um, you know, uh, legitimate uh, complainants against uh, and having, you know, legitimate victims of, of the the torture that happened years ago. Um, and the, the the question to the mayor this week was, how much more of this do you think the city is going to have to pay? Because it seems between Birch himself and the men who trained under him. There is a steady stream of men who um, who've experienced this and um, are are receiving settlements um, and you know right. some sort of a reparation for what's been done to them. Um, it is it is substantial. Yeah, it remains to be seen. Like, does this settlement close the door on the Burge claims that Chicago taxpayers was, have been paying it, out? It was, it was striking. The, the the mayor's response was like, "Well, I'll get back to you on that." You know what I mean? Like, this is like decades later, and she still we don't know. Right. I mean, she the mayor, the mayor clearly said, well, like, you know, we're not it sounded like we're not we're still not sure how many of these are out there, you know, decades later and hundreds of millions of dollars later. We might be looking at more. And and let's let's be clear. Burge was fired 28 years ago and and died three years ago. Right. And the city is still dealing with these cases even today. Right. It's amazing. The Midnight Crew, this crew of of. uh, Far south side detectives who were, you know, it was Burge and these guys who were working under Burge and they were still trying to un- unwind all this, you know, yeah. and it's amazing. Well, uh, I want to ask you about another story out of City Hall, John. Uh, aldermen still haven't agreed on a new map of Chicago's wards. Again, remind us how we got here. It's the 10 year census uh, remap to set the political boundaries. Latino aldermen believe they should get more wards because the Latino population of the city went up and the black population fell. And so the main situation here is Latino uh, aldermen have put forward their map, black aldermen have put forward theirs, and we're still jockeying and arguing and um, I guess negotiating, though there doesn't seem to be a lot of negotiating going on to uh, decide how this is finally going to end up. If they don't decide by mid-May, then uh, these maps will go on a ballot referendum and Chicago voters will get to decide during the June um, primary election which map uh, becomes law. And then there's a decent chance that we'll have a federal court fight after that. Wow. There's a meeting today, is there? Well, there was supposed to be a meeting today. Um, But as has so often been the case here, it seems like there were some disagreements about who all would be involved, who would be invited to that meeting. And so that meeting ended up not happening. And um, Michelle Harris, the head of the rules committee, 
has instead set a Sunday morning meeting at City Hall and invited three black aldermen, three Latino aldermen, and three other members of the council, so white aldermen, to attend. It seems like that meeting will take place, but Latino aldermen kind of feel like the rug was pulled out from under them on the meeting that was supposed to happen today. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll see whether they, in the, in the end, agree to attend that. I think that probably they will, and they will meet Sunday instead. But today's meeting fell apart kind of at the 11th hour. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Reset's Weekly News Recap. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Before the break, we talked about Chicago's 2023 mayoral race already heating up and the city's $14 million payout to two victims of disgraced former Chicago police commander John Burge. But that was just the tip of the iceberg because a lot more happened this week. The IDPH and the Illinois State Board of Education will follow CDC guidance and cut quarantine time from 10 days to 5. A new era beginning for the Bears this morning. The team just hired a new head coach, Matt Eberflus. Chicago Bears are hiring Kansas City Chiefs Executive Director of Player Personnel Ryan Poles as the next general manager. Roan Kalsma, you are our new Jeopardy champion. Overnight, a historic Jeopardy winning streak snapped. Amy Schneider's 40-game run as champion of the long-running quiz show, ending in dramatic fashion. So let's continue digging into some of the week's news with today's panel, WTTW's Brandis Friedman and Chicago Tribune's John Byrne. Brandis, let's start with schools here. Uh, Illinois and Chicago schools are planning to change quarantine rules for students and staff. They're going from 10 days to five. Let's hear first uh, Chicago's top doc, Allison Arwoody. She's commenting on concern from many parents. We know that it's important to keep everybody's confidence that these schools remain settings that are not more of a source of spread than anywhere else. I am very confident that that is true. I have no reason to think that that will happen with the shortening of the quarantine. People may hear, oh, I've been out five days. I'm fine now. And if it's a child who was infected, if we're talking isolation and they're still having a fever, I don't care how many days it is. They need to be home. All right. Lay it out for us, Brandis. What is going on here? (laughs) <laughs> it's as clear as mud. Um, <laughs> so we all remember a couple of weeks ago when the CDC, um, they changed the isolation guidelines, and I think there was some uh, concern and confusion about how that would apply in schools. And so now the state and the district are just coming in uh, coming in line with that, where um, you can, uh, you know, isolate, quarantine for five days. Um, and I think... This, I think the intention is to bring more kids back into the classroom and have fewer kids in quarantine um, if, you know, the, the children are either vaccinated, you know, we're not a close contact. Obviously, if the child um, was sick, then um, there are, you know, different sort of stipulations there as far as, like, when you can come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm not sure what parents are thinking about this, right? Like, as a parent myself and being friends with parents, mm-hmm. it sounds confusing. I, you know, I spoke with a parent um, earlier this week who said that um, at her child's school, which I shall not name, um, 10 out of about, what, 18 or 20 students were quarantining and the classroom had not flipped yet. Um, and mm. parents are kind of confused as far as, like, getting notification from their kid's school. Like, you know, through the parent circuit, they will hear that, oh, so-and-so in class was um, was uh, tested positive, but yeah. then they don't hear anything from the school itself. Um, obviously, you know, Dr. Arwady has been consistent in saying that, you know, schools are not the super spreaders that we are afraid of them being. Um, yeah. But, like, when you look at the case numbers at CPS, it can be scary as a parent. And I think we also know that CPS recently changed the way they are reporting um, positive cases in schools as well. So, 
Yeah, that that is what you just described is very concerning as as a parent myself. Um, we've been getting communication from our schools, but it's almost every day I, I'm hearing about. Uh, you know, this person, you know, entered the building that had COVID or this, you know, a student um, who, you know, may have been near your child has, you know, been has tested positive. So it's just kind of popping up every day. So I'm I'm concerned about going from 10 to 5 as well. I wonder whether that will be enough. Um, do we know how the teachers union is reacting to the change, Brandis? Um, honestly, I don't. Um, I, I, I think the teachers union is, you know, it's been They've been pretty consistent in what they've said as well. Yeah, right, and, and it's only been a couple of weeks since that whole lockout situation. Yes, that was a good time, wasn't it? Fun. Um, and so they've been pretty consistent um, in asking for more uh, for more out of the district um, as far as protecting both the students and the parents. Um, I'm willing to bet good money that uh, the teachers' union would probably prefer uh, a longer a longer quarantine time just to protect the students, to protect the teachers, um, because as we know, so many of Chicago public school students, they come from communities that have been harder hit uh, by this virus, and they would always err on the side of, of being much more cautious. Speaking of the teachers union, Brandis, the election for leadership in the union is this spring and there looks to already be dissent in the ranks. Tell us, first of all, what is the members first coalition? Yeah, so this coalition, um, I remember they cropped up three years ago during the last election, um, and they lost to the current uh, leadership, which their caucus is uh, CORE, and I forget what CORE stands for at the moment, but CORE was the same caucus that Karen Lewis led when they uh, came into leadership uh, the first time, you know, some 10, 15 years ago. Um, And they have launched, this time I think they've hired a, um, a campaign manager, and they have launched a digital ad. Um, criticizing current leadership, you know, using words like, you know, current leadership cares more about, you know, being in front of the camera, and they see a work stoppage as a first step instead of a last, uh, instead of a last resort uh, to, to getting done what they want to get done. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's any evidence, you know, you look at this last election when the teachers' union voted on this contract that was the result of, or not contract, but agreement to return into the classrooms. Yeah. That was the result of, you know, that four to five days out of school. Um, uh, something over 50% voted in favor for it. So there were a lot of teachers, you know, of those who voted who were not big fans of, you know, we did a work stoppage for four days and all we got out of it was the masks and not feeling like enough was complicated. Um, I mean, enough was accomplished. Yeah. And and so uh, so there's, there's, there's definitely some dissent in the ranks. I, I don't know if it's enough to overturn current current leadership. So obviously all of us will be watching that very closely when the election happens in mm-hmm. May. Yeah, and that core caucus you mentioned that uh, uh, President Jesse Sharkey and, and Vice President Stacey Davis-Gates are, are part of, uh, it's the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators. That's what it, um, it there stands for. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> John, earlier we talked about Arne Duncan possibly running against Lori Lightfoot for mayor. Um, but there have also been grumblings that Stacey Davis-Gates is mulling over her own run. What do you think? Could she have support to actually do this? I mean, the, the CTU is a very, very powerful union. You know, you, you, you go a long way. You do a lot worse than having them as kind of your, your, your base starting out. Whether there's, you know, enough broader support for someone like Stacey Davis-Gates to come directly out of the CTU, rather than the CTU um, supporting somebody who's already an elected official who's aligned with them and maybe doesn't, uh, you know, stratify people as much as the union itself, maybe they would opt to go that direction instead. 
But uh, certainly Stacey Davis Gates would make a formidable campaigner. You know, she'd be formidable on a debate stage, that's for sure. And, and she's got name recognition. So I don't and, know. We'll have to see. And to that end, you know, we've asked her about this um, a couple of times ourselves on Chicago Tonight. And more than once, you know, she has said um, she is focused on being, you know, the mother, the CPS mom to her three kids and mm-hmm. on being vice president of CTU right now. I mean, take you know, make of that what you will, because a lot of politicians say, I'm focused on the job that I have right now, and then they run for something at the same time. Sure. That, you know, that may be what she actually means, and she maybe has no intention, but her name has been um, tossed around uh, a good bit. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and you're listening to Reset's Weekly News Recap, where we dig into the week's top local stories. Here to help me out is Chicago Tribune City Hall reporter John Byrne and Brandis Friedman, co-host of WTTW's evening news show, Chicago Tonight. Coming up in about... 10 minutes on the program. We're going to end the show with a sweet treat. We're going to look into the history and legacy of Mars Wrigley, the company that makes M&Ms and Snickers. Stay tuned for that conversation. Brandis, let's talk about another story on our radar this week. Uh, The list of Chicago-based COVID testing companies that are under investigation, it just got longer. Uh, First, it was that uh, Center for COVID Control. It's shutting down after raids from the FBI. And now two companies... O'Hare Clinical Lab and North Shore Clinical Lab. They're also being investigated by multiple agencies. Brent, is the story of these troubling COVID testing sites, it seems to be never ending. Have you been keeping up? Yeah, I've been following this a little bit. You know, obviously, uh, our colleagues over at Block Club Chicago have been, you know, <laughs> shout out to them because they're almost like, you know, the Chicago Newswire. They like, are not, on it. They're <laughs> on it. If, it's, if they're not covering it, it's not happening in Chicago. Um, but, yeah, yeah. There, there, there are these two others that you named. One of them is North Shore Clinical Laboratories, not to be uh, confused or affiliated with North Shore Health System, you know, the big hospital uh, system in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got, you know, a number of third-party pop-ups all over the country. Um, and as you mentioned, we're we're hearing a lot of sort of the same things um, out of both of or all three of these organizations. You know, they've received hundreds of millions of dollars um, from the federal government to cover the cost of testing, but a lot of people are reporting that they are the results take weeks, and we all know that if you haven't gotten a result within a few days, then what's the point of getting the test in the first place? Right. The results are taking either weeks, if they get them at all. Um, they're told to call when they call. There's no pickup. When they send an email, the email bounces back. They get a positive result, um, when, and then a few days later they get a negative result. So a lot mm. of these um, companies have been very inconsistent uh, with their delivery, and it's really hard to trust them. The Better Business Bureau is giving them failing grades. At the same time, it seems like they're responding to reporters because uh, they've been able to get on the phone with Block Club Chicago in some cases, or they've sent a statement, and they're, you know, defending themselves, saying that obviously, like every testing, you know, company or organization, we've been overrun during the Omicron surge, and we're doing this, that, and the other to make improvements so that this doesn't happen again. Um, So we'll have to wait and see, Mm -hmm. because we all know that the Center for COVID Control is actually shutting down now, and we don't know if the same fate will await these other two companies. So many questions arise. John, what do you think? Do you still have faith in the testing process? Who who got uh, multiple negative tests after I had COVID? I have little little faith in the testing process. But um, oh, wait a minute! You tested you know. negative, but you were actually positive. Yeah, yeah, a couple of times. But mm. you know, I, it's just I, I, probably it's because of this Omicron thing where they say the tests aren't so hot. You know what I mean? And yeah. Then, uh, you, you know. Anyway, but. Um, I, I think that we're all seeing, you know, there, 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 are short, there are shortages everywhere. Hopefully the at-home tests are getting more up to speed with where we need them 
to be, but these these clinics and companies, which Kelly Bauer has written a ton about for Block Club, you know, it seems like the Wild West a little bit. I don't know what the federal government is doing to regulate these things ahead of time rather than just investigate them once they start getting uh, inundated with complaints yeah. about the, the shortcomings, but it seems like there's very little uh, administration on the front end of these places. Well, you know, John, one of the companies, O'Hare Clinical Labs, uh, they don't just operate here, but they have more than 100 pop-up sites right. across the country. And, of course, the, the complaints are coming in from multiple states. A lot of folks say that they, they felt compelled, though, to turn to pop-up sites because they said that Chicago just doesn't have enough of their own. Right. There's nothing else to do, right? You can't find them at the at the Walgreens and the city's sites. are They're concentrating on these smaller at-home setups where where the Chicago Department of Health will come to your house and give you shots and they say that works better than the big uh, setups like at the United Center earlier on. I just say it's more efficient to go to your house and maybe it is but people being unable to to get this stuff uh, easily is certainly a problem and these these companies are kind of filling in a gap that's there. Yeah. Well, uh, Chicago just announced two more testing sites downtown in, in response to this concerning news. So hopefully that'll help fill the gap there. But uh, let's turn to another story that we definitely can't ignore. It's a big week in sports, big week for the Bears. The team's got both a new general manager and a head coach. That's Ryan Poles, uh, who doesn't have any executive experience. That's the new, the new GM. And now Matt Eberflus, the new head coach. He's never been a head coach before. Was any of this a surprise to you, Brandis? Which part? <laughs> <laughs> so the young GM, the 36-year-old GM, the first black GM in the 101-year history of the team, the head coach who's never been a head coach, all of yeah. it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. so not a surprise to me that they've done it, obviously, because, you know, it, we obviously we saw those firings come a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago when they did let go of uh, the previous GM and the previous head coach. Um it's, I'm a little surprised, I guess, that they are hiring, you know, brand-new GM, brand-new head coach, neither of whom have had that sort of executive experience before. And that doesn't mean that they can't do it, but it seems to me like maybe it's a little bit risky. Um, at the same time, you know, you can't get the experience doing it until you do it and until get that experience. Yeah. So I'm, I'm eager to see how, how the two of them pull it off. I think, you know, uh, one of them, I can't remember, has a good reputation uh Ryan Poles has a good reputation for being a really good talent scout. And I think, you know, my very limited Bears knowledge tells me that they're going to need some better talent um, and maybe uh, the ability to to coach their their quarterback into, you know, leading the winning team. Yeah. What's your take, John? I mean, smarter people than I have said, no, they, they shouldn't have gone with a defensive guy when Justin Fields is the future of the team. Should have gotten yourselves an offensive guy. But I don't know. I mean, we'll see how it goes. I, I do have concerns about a guy coming out of Kansas City like Poles because it seems like the magic sauce in Kansas City might be due to Patrick Mahomes more than to whatever else they're doing over there. So we'll see if they can transfer the uh, Kansas City Patrick Mahomes magic to the Bears. I, I, I have my doubts. Yeah, and, and John, he's he's making history, uh, if, if nothing else, right? Ryan Poles? Right. Yeah, right. I mean, the first black GM, young guy. I mean, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how he does. You know, obviously, as Bears fans, we're all rooting for him. So, see how they see whether they can pull it off. So, does this give you hope? Will you be following the Bears next season? I, 
you know, as a Chicagoan, you kind of can't help but follow the Bears, I guess. I mean, the, the Bears are like, it's like the the water we swim in, kind of. You know what I <laughs> right. mean? Like, I know, I'm, I'm here rooting for you, John. I'm like, say the right answer, John. People are listening. <laughs> there is only one answer to this question. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to use the word schadenfreude. Let's just say that. I'm going to mention schadenfreude. What about you, Brandis? I mean, I, I agree. I'm not going to lie, right? Like, I love the Bears, and I will always root for Chicago unless they're playing the Saints. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I will be following the Bears next year because, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, everybody roots for Chicago, right? I can't, I can't wait to see if they're able to pull this off because I think everybody wants to see the team turn around um, and, you know, be the Bears we want them to be. And as the gal who's only been to, like, one football game in her life, I will keep the rest of my comments to myself. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> um, so let's talk about something something happier here. Um, well, not so happy for Amy Schneider, who has won the second most games in history on the game show Jeopardy. Her winning streak came to an end this week when a Chicago librarian swooped in. Did anybody see this story? Sorry, right? I did not see the episode. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you saw the story. So, so yeah, John. His name is uh, Roan Talsma, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Out of uh, McKinley Park, McKinley Park neighborhood, and I guess he's a uh, suburban uh, librarian. But I don't know if I'm spoiled. This is like a spoiler alert thing. But I guess he lost after the first game. Oh, um, yeah. I don't think then... spoiler alert because I saw it on okay. I think Jeopardy tweets as well, and so I saw it on Twitter yesterday. That, Not a spoiler. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. So he beat Schneider and then lost um, on his second day, but still. Yeah. No, it was it was yesterday that that this happened. Um, so, are any of you Jeopardy fans? Do you watch? Have you been watching Amy's Run? I mean, I watched Amy's Run. I think that Amy's Run rose to the level of like we were all kind of aware of it, right? Yeah. And, and, wow, like amazing. Good for her. She's a wealthy woman, you know. <laughs> <laughs> One point three million, I think, or something like that. Yeah, that's yeah. shabby. It feels like Chicago librarians are the ones to be because we have seen this movie before. When another Chicago librarian, Emmy Emma Betcher, uh, she beat out a longtime champ at the time, James Holtzauer, in twenty nineteen. So, I mean, special shout out to the local librarians for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, Ron Talzma, hope I'm saying his name correctly, in his interview with the Chicago Tribune, you know, explaining his access to information and how he's, you know, around it all the time. Um, and so he, that, you know, librarians have a bit of a, a leg up. They tend to do well on Jeopardy. Mm-hmm, for sure. Well, tell us what stories you'll be watching this week as we close out the recap. Uh, Brandis, you go first. Um, you know, I'm going to be watching uh, the Van Dyke release that's happening later on this week and how the city and activists respond to it. Um, we know that activists are calling on the federal government to file, um, you know, uh, civil rights violation charges. Um, you know, the, the federal prosecutors don't have to do that because that's what the public asked them to do. Um, you know, it's, and it's different from, you know, the George Floyd case where those charges came fairly quickly, uh, you know, around the criminal, you know, after the criminal charges were filed as well. So, I'm curious to see if there will be any response to that from the government and, you know, how activists, um, how they, you know, raise awareness and draw attention. Um, and if we hear anything about, you know, Van Dyke himself and to where he has been released and, and, and where he is once, once it's over, once he's out. What about you, John? Uh, yeah, the Sunday morning uh, meeting of the aldermen to try to see if they can agree how to agree on future agreements about war remaps. <laughs> they can set some ground rules here, guys. The clock's running. The clock's are ticking. Well, that is it for the weekly news recap. Our thanks to Chicago Tribune's John Byrne and WTTW's Brandis Friedman. Thank you both for talking the week's news and have a great weekend.
Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.